doesn't know it. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 508. Jason Lingren is with me. It's just two of us today. We're going to be covering weather modification. It's been a long time since we did like a complete episode on it. As a matter of fact, the last episode was episode 73. There's a lot of voices all over talking about this. There's a lot of opinions about what's being sprayed. And for the diligent researchers, I think we should take them all serious. We should look what people are laying down, what they're discovering. Where I am, there are periods, again, when they're just spraying and spraying and spraying. And then there's days when we have blue skies. But even on those days, I notice these really high altitude planes. And the thing about it, people would argue, oh, that's just contrails. Well, if you go back to episode 73, I'd taken the time to look up some engineers that talk about the modern what they call a high bypass jet engine. And the claim in those papers that I looked up written by engineers is that it's nearly impossible because these engines are so efficient for what's called a contrail and words have meaning, right? We're being conned. That's my point of view, but anyhow, we'll get into this. Welcome, Jason. Oh, and a very beautiful good morning. How much do you guys notice lately? There was a, I don't know, there was a large period of time where there was not a lot of spraying going on and now it's on and off for us. What's it like down there? Pretty sporadic. There are days I definitely see stuff, but then we'll have many days without it. What's interesting is even when the spraying wasn't going on, the sunsets always seem to be smudged the majority of the time and quite frequency or <laughs> quite frequently frequency. I've been noticing that I have clear shots at sunset, which is a good thing. If there is a double sun or a source sun or another body, there's something there. Let's just put it that way. Then we're having a lot more opportunity to try to get at it. Before we jump into this, I will also say I am noticing of all the images, and unfortunately, most of them are stills that show the so-called double sun. Many people are using red or infrared filters on their cameras to see it. I guess I would add that. And anyone who's going to try to do this before we get into weather modification here, don't just shoot stills. If you shoot stills, it is very difficult to rule out lens flare. Excuse me, lens flare. Always shoot a little bit of video. And by the way, move the camera a little bit. That way, if there's a lens flare, it becomes very evident and you can rule that out. Uh, anyhow, you got anything you want to add or you want to jump in here? Now let's jump in and do it. All right, let's do it. Weather modification is the act of intentionally manipulating or altering the weather. The most common form of weather modification is cloud seeding, which increases rain or snow, usually for the purpose of increasing the local water supply. Weather modification can also have the goal of preventing damaging weather, such as hail or hurricanes, from occurring, or of provoking damaging weather against the enemy as a tactic of military or economic warfare like Operation Popeye, where clouds receded to prolong the monsoons in Vietnam. Weather modification in warfare has been banned by the United Nations under the Environmental Modification Convention. You know, it's interesting, Jason, we recently had a guest that pointed out uh, a point of view that when the government owns the corporations, that's communism. And from that point of view, when the corporations own the governments, that's fascism. However you want to slice and dice that, this idea that things have been banned, I mean, this is all beginning to fall by the wayside. What we have now are industrial military complexes, corporations, and other very powerful entities that seem to do whatever the heck they want. But 
all the way back in, I don't know, it was 2008, 2010, something like that. I had decided that I was going to try to write news and actually see if I could put real news into the world as a news writer and cut to the chase. I couldn't do it. The editors wouldn't allow it through. They had all these rules that ensured that it couldn't be done. Point is, is in the news at that time, there was an article admitting that in 2008, I think it was during the Olympics, China's Weather Modification Bureau, so that's admitted since then, created a huge blizzard, which caused a lot of damage. And even to this day, people seem to be unwilling to consider that there are, in fact, things like weather modification bureaus. But to make it worse, uh, it's my point of view from the years that I actually filmed this, you'll see planes that are white with absolutely no markings, no numbers whatsoever. So what does that tell you? Do environmental rules or the banning of anything matter at that point, I would ask anyhow. This is another one of those situations where I tell people, hey man, it's not 1955, it's the 21st century. There's technology that you probably wouldn't think is out there, but it is. Well, I mean, hell, how many people would even believe that in 1955 weather modification was going on? When I first started to look at this, there were claims all the way back to the early 1900s, and um, everyone should be aware that cloud seeding was a thing. And I'll ask another question. Consider, like I just heard that one of the big insurance companies, I think it might've been State Farm, just announced they will no longer write policies for new houses in California, citing the wildfires and other things and the cost to rebuild. You can see where this is going, but here's my point. If we've been seeding clouds to create rain, since you know almost 100 years now, or let's say it's just 50, whatever you want to accept is true. How is it that those wildfires are allowed to be? Why doesn't someone just seed a cloud and put them out? I mean, I'm just asking a common sense question. And that begins to go a long way to underscoring what's actually going on. Another term that you will hear is geoengineering. Mainstream sources say that geoengineering is the deliberate large-scale intervention in the Earth's natural systems to counteract climate change. It has encompassed two very different things. Sucking carbon dioxide out of the sky so that the atmosphere will trap less heat, and reflecting more sunlight away from the planet so less heat is absorbed in the first place. Climate change, of course, is an often-used buzzword, and concepts attached to the notion of climate change are often used to push global governance policies. I'll take it a step further. My point of view, and this is forward-looking, so take it with a pinch of salt, is that the majority of these governance New World Order policies are going to be tied directly to the idea of climate change. After all, with all that's happened with things like covid Can they get the same buy-in they did last time around? So many people have lost trust in authority of any kind, have begun to finally wake up to what actually happened in 2020. As a matter of fact, a good friend of mine pointed out that had everyone just gone about their business the way they normally did, this whole push for a world takeover, if that's what you want to call it, would have fallen to the ground. And it's true. Everyone would have been powerless if everyone would have just said, screw that. I'm not muzzling myself. I'm not closing my business. But when we come to this climate change idea, this, in fact, is going to be one of the main catalysts that is pushed forward to slowly 
tighten the reins. Um, and I don't really think it's deniable. And then there's the whole argument of whether it's real or not. And I think everyone knows where I stand on that. And now for a bit of propaganda from climate.gov. Carbon dioxide concentrations are rising mostly because of the fossil fuels that people are burning for energy. Fossil fuels like coal and oil contain carbon that plants pulled out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis over many millions of years. We are returning that carbon to the atmosphere in just a few hundred. Since the middle of the 20th century, annual emissions from burning fossil fuels have increased every decade, from an average of 3 billion tons of carbon, 11 billion tons of carbon dioxide, a year in the 1960s, to 9.5 billion tons of carbon, 35 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year in the 2010s, according to the Global Carbon Update 2021. Well, here's where the nonsensical nature of life kicks in again. So if this was all true, which I don't accept that it is, I don't accept that global warming is a thing, but setting aside what I choose to accept or not accept, doesn't this really point, if we just said this is all true, doesn't this point to corporations, big corporations are the problem? And yet one of the main tenets of the global warming idea is that we are the problem. Well, we have no power to control how things are moved from point A to point B, how things are flown or driven or delivered. Big corporations do that. And there's a double-edged sword. Right now, everything is saying, okay, gas engines got to go away. That's all well and good, except that what we are seeing with all the new electronic things, and by the way, the electronic cars will not be the totality. You can't mine the things that you need to mine without the internal combustion engine, as far as I know, just to make the point to go mine the batteries you need to make and everything for the electric world that's coming up. But with the electric world is limitations. There is tracking in every vehicle. Everything you do is collected. Uh, There are kill switches by law allowed to be put into these cars. And the obvious on the face of it is you get an electric car, the average person can afford one that goes less than probably 400 miles, which means you can go about half of that before you need to get home or get to a charging station I just talked to a guy the other day who came out to my house. He had this electric pickup truck. I said, how much did it cost? He said, $77,000. My mouth dropped open. You could buy a freaking Mercedes Benz for that kind of money, couldn't you? I think. But I began to talk to him. I said, how long does it, you know, he only went 300 and some miles and it had a pickup truck bed. And I said, how long does it take to charge? He said about 20 miles an hour. So basically it takes him most of the night to get back. Um, But then I asked him, well, this is a pickup truck. What happens when you put it under load? And he says all the numbers cut in half or more. So there are controls and limitations that are absolutely being built into the replacement of the internal combustion engine. And while this is neither here nor there, this is all a very cleverly, cleverly crafted paradigm that we're in right now. We got to deal with all this emissions from these tailpipes. So we've all got to go electric. No one wants to talk about where the energy is coming from to charge the electric because it's still polluting the majority of it. But the limitations is really what they're after. You're not going to be able to go very far. You're going to get tracked and data collected. And by the way, there's a kill switch in every one of them. While all these numpties are screaming about the carbon, the worldwide temperatures seem to actually be scaling downward, not upward. 
Oh, it's, it blows my mind. You know, here's a guy running a business that I had to come out to deal with insulation of all things, to take a look at the insulation in my house that got blown down underneath the house. And he chose to spend 77 grand on an electric vehicle. What does that tell you about his mindset? So at some level, the propaganda is working because to spend that kind of money, I mean, come on, that is a lot of money for a car, a lot more than the majority of people are going to be willing to spend. And I'm guessing, did he not run a business? He wouldn't be able to afford that, but come on, man, 77 grand for a vehicle that can go less than 400 miles. And for a bit more propaganda, MIT Technology Review, August 9th, 2019. What is geoengineering and why should you care? It's becoming clear that we won't cut carbon emissions soon enough to prevent catastrophic climate change. But there may be ways to cool the planet more quickly and buy us a little more time to shift away from fossil fuels. They're known collectively as geoengineering, and though it was once a scientific taboo, a growing number of researchers are running computer simulations and proposing small-scale outdoor experiments. Even some legislators have begun discussing what role these technologies could play. But what is geoengineering exactly? Traditionally, geoengineering has encompassed two very different things, sucking carbon dioxide out of the sky so that the atmosphere will trap less heat, and reflecting more sunlight away from the planet so less heat is absorbed in the first place. As the threats of climate change grow, we're all likely to hear more and more about the possibilities and dangers of geoengineering. Where the hell do I start with this MIT nonsense? First of all, this has been going on for a long, long time, whether they want to admit it, they're acting like small scale and they're, you know, it's all nonsense. And by the way, who is the governing body? I'm not okay with my air being messed with or my weather, but it doesn't really matter. They're doing it anyhow. And what used to be scientific taboo, as they put it, for a good reason, you know, you're screwing with things that you can't possibly comprehend. But one of the key things in this propaganda from MIT is reflecting more sunlight. And this is where people need to get back to their spiritual side. The sun is the light of this world. It guarantees all life in this place. It is associated with our spiritual evolution and much more. So for them to come around reflecting the sunlight away, what's really going on here? Is this a direct spiritual attack? I would ask. Each of us will need to work that out on our own. But I would say, for me, it's no mystery. Just last night, I went down to the beach for 40 minutes. I stared into the setting sun, and you know what? I feel freaking awesome today. I walked away from that experience feeling recharged. My eyes were sharper, and I do it all the time. I know how important the sun is to not just boast my life, but to my spiritual life. And that is what they're setting out to block, and I think there's a spiritual reason for it. Humanity has long sought to purposefully alter atmospheric phenomena such as clouds, rain, snow, hail, lightning, thunderstorms, tornadoes, hurricanes, and cyclones. The first three attempts at modifying the weather occurred in the first three decades of the 20th century. First, in 1924, Professor Emery Leon Chaffee at Harvard University dispensed charged sand from an airplane to attempt to modify weather. Second, in 1930, W. Verart dropped dry ice into clouds in an attempt to modify weather. 
His technique and results were apparently published only in his book, which was in the Dutch language. And third, Professor Henry G. Houghton of MIT sprayed hygroscopic solutions into fogs in 1938 to dissipate the fog. None of these early scientists had adequate financial support for their research, so society was unable to benefit from their ideas. Looking back in time, it is clear that it is not enough to have a good idea or theoretical scientific insight into a problem. We must also have the financial resources to pay both salaries and expenses of scientists who have ideas and insight. This is why it took General Electric and then the U.S. military to provide such resources. Add the exclamation point and, you know, what gets shown here. This is straight out information lifted for the public. This is all the way back at the beginning of the 1900s. This is going on. But when we look at the scale and the scope of what we have seen going on with what we call chemtrails, who's paying that bill? And I think there are a lot of people who have done research that will have opinions about who's paying that bill. And I think it's pretty clear that places like the UN or the military industrial complex, or you see the gamut. But the point I would make is that is a massive bill. In uh, I, I don't even remember what the year was. It must have been 2015. I took roughly an 8,000-mile trip around this country. Everywhere I went, I saw sunrises and sunsets smudged out. The spring was at fever pitch. Below Washington, D.C., it was worse than I had ever seen anywhere. I mean, my heart went out to the people having to live under what was going on there. But the sheer scale and scope, what if those were just empty planes transporting people? What would the cost be? But they're not. They're spraying and they're doing it all the time. And they're doing it just about everywhere. I have had very few emails in the course of doing this podcast where people have written me and said, we never see this. There have been a few. The one that always stands out is in near the Himalayas. Apparently, people are claiming that they're not seeing this. There have been a couple other people that have claimed, but that is a hell of a bill. Who's paying that bill, I would ask. What is called the modern era of scientific weather modification began in 1946 with the work of Vincent J. Schaefer and Irving Langmuir at the General Electric Research Laboratories in Schenectady, New York. Schaefer discovered that when dry ice pellets, which are frozen carbon dioxide, were dropped into a cloud composed of water droplets in a deep freeze box, the droplets were rapidly replaced by ice crystals, which increased in size and then fell to the bottom of the box. The Schaefer-Langmuir experiments in the laboratory and then in the atmosphere demonstrated that what are called supercooled clouds, those composed of water droplets at temperatures below freezing, could be dissipated. When the supercooled clouds were seeded with grains of dry ice, ice crystals formed and grew large enough to fall out of the clouds. So when is this? This is just after the end of World War II. They're listing the date here as 1946. They're pulling this. So let's ask another common sense question. Why hasn't anyone defused these hurricanes that have done so much damage? And I think there are a lot of people out there that will say because they're helping fuel the hurricanes. The one that hit, uh, where was it? Was it Houston, Jason? I think we covered. There was so much work done to show that it looked like not only was it generated, but it was being pumped up along the way. And this is a serious, serious matter, if it's correct. But common sense would tell us with the technology that was going on as back as far as 1946, shouldn't we be able to take the punch out of a hurricane at this point? Because with what they publish, 
and the tests that they say work, it seems like that should be possible. So why isn't it being done? Or for that matter, why isn't it being looked at to stop these damaging storms? And I think we all have a good idea of why. It was discovered that certain substances other than dry ice can be used to seed clouds. For example, when silver iodide and lead iodide are burned, they create a smoke of tiny particles. These particles produce ice crystals in supercooled clouds below temperatures of approximately minus 5 degrees Celsius as the supercooled cloud droplets evaporate. The water vapor is then free to deposit onto the silver iodide or lead iodide crystals. Although many other materials can cause ice crystals to form, the ones discussed are the most widely used. For the most part, dry ice is dispersed from airplanes, but silver iodide nuclei may be generated on the ground and carried upward by air currents, introduced from airplanes, or produced by pyrotechnic devices such as rockets or exploding artillery shells. Just saying, Jason, with all the stuff that they've published about these tests, it seems like it should be no problem to take the punch out of some of these deadly storms we've seen. And so I think it further underscores what people have claimed is that are these being generated, these storms? Are they being pumped up along the way? Because wouldn't it be common sense with all this technology we have to say these storms are dangerous? They destroy mega property. They kill people. Couldn't we do something to defuse them? And I've never heard that conversation. When it comes to hurricanes, it was hypothesized that by seeding the area around the eye wall with silver iodide, latent heat would be released. This would promote the formation of a new eye wall. As this new eye wall was larger than the old eye wall, the winds of the tropical cyclone would be weaker due to a reduced pressure gradient. Even a small reduction in the speed of a hurricane's winds should be beneficial, since the damage potential of a hurricane increased as the square of the wind speed. A slight lowering of wind speed would have a large reduction in destructiveness. So what do we see when these hurricanes come ashore? Wall-to-wall media coverage about death and mayhem and fear. Shouldn't we be seeing news coverage of we've released a whole fleet of planes that are going to try to affect the hurricane eyewall in the way we just read? We never see that. So what's going on? I think it's obvious what's going on. Project Cirrus was the first attempt to modify a hurricane. On October 13, 1947, the U.S. military dropped nearly 180 pounds of crushed dry ice into a hurricane in the Atlantic Ocean, safely off the eastern coast of the United States. The hurricane changed direction and traveled inland, making landfall near Savannah, Georgia, where it did extensive damage to property. The U.S. military classified the data from the seeding of this hurricane to frustrate litigation. Attorneys for General Electric reviewed and censored Langmuir's scientific publications to avoid tort liability for damage by this hurricane. A biography of Langmuir says, For the first time in Langmuir's long career, 38 years at GE, officials occasionally wanted to know in advance what he was going to say in his public reports. Langmuir believed that there was approximately a 99% probability that this hurricane's change of direction was the result of the cloud seeding. Langmuir's opinion about the effect of the cloud seeding on this hurricane is not mentioned in any of his publications in scientific journals, but is mentioned in the 1953 final report on Project Cirrus, which was classified 
by the U.S. military. It is likely that attorneys for General Electric directed Langwehr not to make any public admission that cloud seeding caused the hurricane to change direction in order to avoid litigation against General Electric by victims of the hurricane. Subsequent analysis of the data by meteorologists showed that this hurricane had already begun to change its direction when the seeding was done. A modern assessment is, quote, It seems very unlikely that the 1947 seeding could have had much effect on the hurricane except for the seeded clouds. Except for the seeded clouds. Well, I I mean, on the face of it, there's the idea that you can change the direction. On the face of it, they're admitting that they can stifle any knowledge of what they've done getting out. And lastly, what the hell is General Electric? That's not a governing body, right? That's a corporation. This is a long time ago. So all this time ago, we have a very wealthy corporation, it seems, probably doing whatever the hell it wants to do. I'm just saying, shouldn't this actually in a real world be, oh, the the legislative bodies of the United States government have funded and okayed or, you know, whatever they want to do. But that's not what they're saying here. They're saying a very rich corporation went out and did a thing and then managed to cover up any leaks to the press so that it couldn't be covered what it was that they did. And that was in 1953. The General Electric U.S. Military Research Project released silver iodide and dry ice in the vicinity of Albuquerque, New Mexico, during October 1948 and July 1949. Langware initially claimed that this release caused rain all over the state of New Mexico and possibly in Kansas. Langwehr's group continued to release silver iodide in New Mexico between November 1949 and July 1951. Langwehr claimed that the release of silver iodide modified the weather, not only in the state of New Mexico, but also more than 1,000 kilometers downwind. Langwehr's claim was rejected by the meteorological community because Langwehr's evidence was inadequate. The release of silver iodide was discontinued in July 1951 during the great floods in Kansas and adjacent states. This flood was no ordinary flood. The July 13, 1951 flood at Kansas City was described as the most devastating flood in the nation's history. 17 people died as a direct result of that flood, despite weather forecasts and warnings. It is still unknown what effect, if any, the silver iodide release in New Mexico had on rain and floods in Kansas. The modern consensus of meteorologists seems to be that the release of silver iodide in New Mexico probably had no effect on the rainfall floods in Kansas, but if there was an effect, the effect would be only a small enhancement of the total rainfall. Perhaps the more interesting lesson is not one of science, but ethics. Limeware sincerely believed that silver iodide release was modifying weather at long distances from the point of release, yet he continued to engage in such weather modification for two years, despite the possibility of harm from such modification, and despite the lack of consent by affected people. So we're arguing about what the release of the silver iodide did. There was a big flood, and 
you know, so let's ask the question. So if they're going to argue about this and not be able to seem to wrap their arms around what some silver iodide did, what does spraying, whatever it is they're spraying up there, and we know some of what they're spraying. There are three common heavy metals, uh, aluminum, barium, strontium. Uh, that's been known for a long time. There are many other things. There are a lot of people who claim that there are nanoparticles and even some claims that there are nanobots in this stuff. So, I mean, what's going on here? They're going to argue about, did this cause a flood? And yet they're out there spraying nonstop all over the world. I'm just saying, how can any of this be safe in the first place? And secondarily, I'll ask the question again. All this time ago, in the 50s, they knew they could create hella rain with silver iodide. And yet damn near every year, there are wildfires in California that do more damage than you can imagine. Why don't they just generate some rain and put the fires out? And that points to a really dark foundational cause to these fires. Uh, I think you're trying to bring up some common sense there, aren't you? I, I think we know what's going on. When I was young, what actually was true of California? And by the way, when I was young, there was a hell of a lot more chaparral land and things that you know, where things weren't built. In other words, there was a lot more things that could burn back in the day and become a serious wildfire. What we used to see was like the Laguna fire, roughly within a decade, usually seven, eight years, there would be some pretty serious fires. I mean, serious fires. But what it's become now is there are every season, fire after fire after fire. The year that I left San Diego, I went down to get gas and people were talking because fires were burning. But here's the rub. I asked them what they thought and every one of them said the same thing. This is fraud. And how do you know it's fraud when you're in San Diego? When there's a big fire, you freaking know. You can see it stacked up against the mountains. You can smell it. The ash is falling. This is the telltale signs that there are fires that are out of control. They were reporting five. There was one moderate fire. All the rest being blown out over CNN and fear porn across the world were freaking man-made fires within fire breaks. Four of them, even some of the people I talked to said, we saw them over there with their crews in between the fire breaks, lighting the fires and doing things like this. And when you see what's going on, it's clear there's an agenda. It's clear there's lying. And the scary thing about California fires is how many times have they caught the rogue fireman that went rogue or something like this? It's really quite scary because it doesn't take much to start these fires. And I think a lot of people are of a mind that that's exactly what's happened. That is the change. Instead of one every seven or eight years, that's horrific. We're having five or more every year. What's going on? And many people are screaming agenda. And then when you get places like the biggest corporations in the world that handle insurance saying, guess what, guys, we're not insuring new homes anymore in the state of California because of all these fires. It all starts to point to a very, very insidious overtone. In July of 1948, globalist professor Julian Huxley, who was a biologist and also served as the UNESCO Secretary General from 1946 to 1948, apparently proposed detonating atomic bombs at a suitable height above the polar regions to raise the temperature of the Arctic Ocean and warm the entire climate of the northern temperate zones. 
This idea seems to have come from an article that was titled, Can We Atomize the Arctic? by Wallace W. Ashley and Elmer V. Swan. According to the authors, Professor Julian Huxley had proposed the idea of using nuclear bombs to melt the polar ice caps. The idea is that this would moderate the northern climate, eliminating a lot of cold weather, and open up shipping around the world. Obviously, this did not happen, and the idea was, apparently, not seriously entertained. <laughs> it's like sitting at a poker table with a Huxley who's about to bluff. Well, first of all, nuclear weapons actually have to exist. Isn't it interesting that he's on this in 48? So what's really probably going on here? 1948, really? They just faked two drops on major cities. So this almost clearly is to push the idea that nukes are real and they're special. But uh, I guess back then we could do the opposite of global warming. If I remember correctly, Jason, in the 70s, there was a new ice age coming. They just say whatever they want to fit the agenda. And the real problem we have now is the idea of governing bodies. That's out the window. It appears that places like UNESCO, the UN, the WHO, they seem to be doing whatever they want. They seem to have puppeted out the so-called governments. And what's worse is the corporations with money, which we saw in the last couple bullet, bullet points, with General Electric going out with the military doing whatever they want. It almost feels like we're at a point where law, the idea of law, is going to be out the window. Now, of course, they're screaming about the horrors of melting polar ice caps. Back then, they thought it was a great idea. Well, what's so frustrating about this is the way they manipulate mindsets. So where I am now, I am familiar with beaches where I am now that I have seen since I'm five years old. There are fences and other things that occasionally got hit during a mean high tide when a storm hit. That hasn't happened in years. So if you're telling me that the elevation of the oceans is rising, shouldn't the tide be noticeably higher? Shouldn't the fences get hit more often? And that's not what we're seeing. And then they make up these other things. Well, that's because you're, no, all the oceans are connected. Over time, if that is true, then all the oceans would be effective. Even though we say there's an Atlantic Ocean and a Pacific Ocean, guess what, boys? They are all connected. In truth, there's one big ocean, as far as we know. But maybe I'm making a bold claim there since we don't even for sure know where we are, or what the map actually looks like. But my point is, is I'm on the water. I've known these beaches all my life. There is no noticeable rise in, in the ocean water. And to be blunt, wasn't it Al Gore that told us we had like 10 or 15 years? Well, where is it? Nothing's happened. And they're doing it again with the fossil fuels. Oh, we've only got so much time. They just keep pushing the goalpost. And what follows in behind is restrictions and takeovers. That's actually what's going on. On December 27th, 1950, the General Electric Company announced that it would no longer enforce its patents on weather modification methods. By effectively putting its weather modification patents into the public domain, General Electric further isolated itself from tort liability for harm that might arise from weather modification technology that was developed by employees of General Electric. Dr. Vonnegut, appearing in 1952 before a U.S. Senate committee that was considering legislation on weather modification, said, Theory has predicted, and experiments are confirming the fact that a few pounds of silver iodide released into the atmosphere in the form of fine particles can exercise a profound influence over the weather hundreds of miles away from the point of release. 
Clearly, no private individual or group can be permitted to carry on operations over thousands or hundreds of thousands of square miles. The potentialities, both for good and bad, which attend silver iodide seeding are so large that the development and use of this technique must be placed in the hands of the federal government. Despite Dr. Vonnegut's clear insight into the nature of the problem, the U.S. Congress never passed a statute regulating weather modification. Well, there it is. Is this actually fascism now? Is it actually true that the corporations own the government? And while I think people would argue it's not, I think it's pretty clear that what the governments do is in response to where the big money is. I don't think that's really arguable. So by the nature of what's gone on here, they're admitting that weather modification is a big deal. The fact that a company like General Electric had a patent on weather modification and then just gives it away to everyone to avoid tort further underscores the truth of what's going on. And so what do we see now? We see planes in the sky all the time. Those of us who recognize what normal is and what normal is not have been aware for, I don't know, 20 years now or more that the spraying has been almost nonstop. And so I think it's clear that Mr. Vonnegut claiming that it needed to be under the hands of the government was speaking on deaf ears. It's in the hands of private corporations. It's in the hands of probably the military industrial complex. And uh, they seem to be doing whatever they want here. And will we wake up someday in the future where you actually have to pay for good weather or something like that? Will you actually have to pay for clean air? Seems extreme to ask the question, but we know what happens. It never reaches a point where things are just in stasis. It's always inching forward, inching forward. And that inching is always to our deficit. Next, there was Project SCUD, which originated at New York University in May of 1952 and ran until October of 1954, which was an attempt to discover quantitative effects of cloud seeding on cyclones developing in the east coastal region of the United States. A meteorological group at New York University forecast the location of the center and the zero hour of an incipient cyclone. The personnel at naval facilities based in the coastal area were responsible for randomization, for seeding, and for collection of observations. The experiment was designed to test the hypothesis that cloud seeding in areas of cyclogenesis on the east coast of the United States has no measurable effect on the development of storms there. Precipitation data were taken because it was thought that they would reflect the effects of the seeding treatment, if any. The experiment was designed with the leading idea that seeding during an early stage of a cyclone would be more effective than during the later stages. It was hoped that the seeding of clouds would produce rain over large areas where it would not occur of its own accord and, in accordance with a suggestion of Langmuir, that the heat so generated would have a marked effect on the general circulation of the atmosphere. With the above in mind, an effort was made to seed situations in which cyclogenesis appeared imminent. Even though the duration of the experiment was too short to detect the possible effects of seeding of an intensity that was reasonable to expect, some of the findings attained in this experiment deserve serious attention. <laughs> deserve serious. This is the 50s we're talking about still, so people can imagine what's going on now. As I began to film this, I mean, before I was even on YouTube, I had begun to film this, and no one was buying. And I tried to think of ways, how can I prove? And so I would film in the morning when the sky is blue, and I would say, I'm predicting. I would put up the timestamp. 
and I'm predicting that the entire sky will be smudgy, milky white, and I would film it. Very few buying. So eventually I got to the point where I would film planes because everyone was saying, you're an idiot. Those are contrails. Even though all the evidence that had been filmed, predicted and shown, I was filming them turning on and off their sprayers and still very few people are buying. All these years later, I think a lot more people are taking it serious, but come on, this is the 1950s we're talking about. We can only imagine with all the computer modeling and everything else that's at their disposal, what's possible now. But what we know for sure is those planes seem to be just about everywhere, almost all the time. The United States Weather Bureau's National Hurricane Research Project, founded in 1955, had as one of its objectives to investigate the scientific validity of hurricane modification methods. To this end, silver iodide dispensers were tested in Hurricane Daisy in August of 1958. The flares were deployed outside of the hurricane eyewall, so this was an equipment test rather than a modification experiment. The equipment malfunctioned in all but one of the flights, and no conclusive data was acquired. Of course. So wouldn't you just queue up and go back again and try to get things to work? Uh, and none of this makes sense, Jason. So they tried, but they failed and they walked away. This is the United States Weather Bureau. So it's not like funding was a problem, I would estimate. These feel like mainstream misleading articles that you'll find here and there. In 1958, M. Gorodsky, Soviet engineer and mathematician, and Valentin Cherenkov, Soviet meteorologist, proposed placing a ring of metallic potassium particles into Earth's polar orbit to diffuse light reaching Earth and increase solar radiation to thaw the permanently frozen soil of Russia, Canada, and Alaska and melt polar ice. You read these things, Jason, it almost feels like someone's handing a bunch of monkeys a lighter and they've got a stick of dynamite. I mean, they're they're screwing with things they can't possibly comprehend. And while I'm thinking about it, as you were reading this particular bullet point, isn't this part of the story of the Anunnaki that they were coming here to rob gold so they could particleize it and put it in their atmosphere to save their planet via weather modification? It never ends. But I mean, how is it possible for any of these people to have a good idea of what the results will be when you screw with something like the weather? It's all quite astonishing. The first seeding experiment since the Project Cirrus disaster was attempted on September 16, 1961, flying into Hurricane Esther by NHRP and United States Navy aircraft. Eight cylinders of silver iodide were dropped into Esther's eyewall, and winds were recorded as weakening by 10%. The next day, more seeding flights were made. This time, the silver iodide did not fall into the eyewall, and no reduction in wind speed was observed. These two results were interpreted as making the experiment a success. The seedings into Hurricane Esther would lead to the establishment of Project Storm Fury in 1962, a joint venture of the United States Department of Commerce and the United States Navy. Well, we've covered silver iodide across, I don't know, two, three decades here. So I think what we're learning is that silver iodide works. It does something or they would give it up. We're all the way into the 60s now and they're still doing it. And what do they discover? That they did get a reduction when it went into the eyewall. So again, why aren't we seeing these big dangerous storms, these hurricanes that have become more frequent? Why aren't we seeing attempts to diffuse them? Just asking. 
Back in the 60s, they were still using silver iodide, and that started decades before. It's pretty clear there was a result. Next, we have Project Bataan, the objective of which was the analysis of the life history of thunderstorms, a Department of Defense research activity supported by the Advanced Research Project Agency. Project Bataan sought to expand understanding of storm physics as an aid to weather forecasting, fire prevention, and possibly for artificially controlling the weather. Dr. Helmut Weichmann, as an employee of the U.S. Army Signal Research and Development Laboratory, and Dr. Paul McCready of Meteorology Research Incorporated, were joint leaders of the Project Bataan team. During the 1962 July-August storm season in Flagstaff, Arizona, the scientists selected guinea pig storms and seeded them with chemicals. Effects were thoroughly analyzed from the ground and from the air with time-lapse motion picture cameras, stereo still cameras, storm radar, lightning detectors, and airborne heat sensors. Among the agents inserted in selected clouds were condensation nuclei, which temporarily increased the number of water droplets in the cloud, and pulverized dry ice, which turns a portion of the cloud to fine snow crystals that remain aloft. The utilization of these agents facilitated study of a storm's characteristics. You know, you got to wonder, Jason, when they're manipulating the weather in one place, is there a side effect somewhere else? Like if you're making it rain or do something in a place that wouldn't have, doesn't that pretty much mean some place where the rain would have been is not getting the rain? And if that's all true, then it's probably going to end up like the AI race, right? Where the strongest of the remaining governments in the world are all going to be fighting for, you know, the most feasible control of weather modification. I mean, seems logical, right? You would think. You would think. But as we have seen here, it seems to be corporations and the military industrial complex that are driving this whole thing. And for the last point for hour one, Vice President Johnson at Southwest Texas State University in 1962, quote, It lays the predicate and foundation for the development of a weather satellite that will permit man to determine the world's cloud layer and ultimately to control the weather. And he who controls the weather will control the world. In other statements, Johnson said that in his subcommittee's detailed summary statement that our very future depended on being the ones who first seized ownership of space. Control of space means control of the world, Johnson declared. And one more statement from Vice President Johnson went as follows. From space, the masters of infinity would have the power to control the Earth's weather, to cause drought and flood, to change the tides and raise the levels of the sea, to divert the Gulf Stream and change temperate climates to frigid. Johnson continued, In essence, the Soviet Union has appraised control of space as a goal of such consequence that achievement of such control has been made a first aim of national policy. In contrast, our decisions, more often than not, have been made within the framework of the government's annual budget. Against this view, we now have on record the appraisal of leaders in the field of science, respected men of unquestioned competence, whose valuation of what control of outer space means renders irrelevant the bookkeeping concerns of fiscal officers. Later on, President Johnson would authorize weather warfare over Vietnam. So, I mean, the main, if we're going to boil all this down, what's he saying? Control of the world, masters of infinity, control of the world. So all the way back here in 62, right after the JFK skit, 
Uh, they're going on and on about space. Well, what do we know about space now? Not a lot, actually. Almost everything we're told is a lie. From my point of view, you don't go with your tennis shoes on. In other words, material 3D objects, from my point of view, do not go beyond probably what's called the firmament. In other words, they're talking about control of space as if it's a thing, and I don't accept that it's a thing. If it is a thing, there's never been anything shown that can be validated that it's a thing. But with regard to the weather, he's going on and on in 1962, right after the JFK, that change, that world-changing event, JFK. And what's he talking about? Whoever does this first controls the world. Well, I got news for you, Johnson. You're supposed to be in a democratically elected government here. And you can see all the way back, these people are already vying for all in control of everything. I mean, what do you add here, Jason? The main, the main tenets of this last point is now we're going to go use what we've learned about weather, the manipulation of weather in Vietnam, because we can. And by the way, whoever gets best at this gets to control the world. Well, this is like everything I always say. If they've got a technology that they're working on or have got working, they're going to weaponize it. It's what always happens. No military ever lets things go. They don't be like, oh, no, nah, no, nah, we don't want to do that. Of course, they've put God knows how much money into weaponizing such things. You know, there's so much that I have chosen not to add into this conversation because it borders on fear porn. And in some ways, pieces of it might be validated. Pieces of it can't be which is no different than you know someone saying, I know absolutely what they're spraying. Well, I know that we do know some of the things they spray, but as far as I know, nobody knows 100%. And just from me monitoring, I can tell you that in any given day, I see a number of different things being sprayed. I used to film the altitude at which they were doing it and then film the mixture of the two things they had done, obscuring the sun and milking out the whole sky. But there are people out there who claim that part of what's going on is we're now all breathing these metallic nanoparticles and we're becoming antennas. And when you begin to think about these things, that's pretty creepy. I've actually had people tell me that movies like I Think We're Alone Now, where everyone just drops dead one day and they never tell you why, their idea is because we're literally have all been turned into walking antennas. Those who took the jab have metals in them. Those who are breathing the sprayed skies have metals in them. And that one day someone just pulses a frequency within the Wi-Fi network that's covering the world and everyone drops dead. There's all these ideas on the table and I'm pushing them all aside just to get down to brass tacks that until enough of us accept that not only is this going on, this has been going on a long, long time. And do you consent? Do you consent to having your sunlight blocked? And this comes down to God-given rights. For me, I have no doubt that the creator granted me the divine spark of life. I was granted free will. And with the free will comes creative powers. And in that, most of the tests that I have to go through, good and bad in my life, will hinge on that one thing I just said. But lastly, I was made beneficiary of this creation. And how do I know this is true? Because the creation provides everything we have ever needed to survive. And a big piece of that is the light of this world, also known as the sun. And in the forgetting of these God-given rights, what we see going on goes on. At some point, presumably, the majority of people begin to realize that their God-given rights are being violated. And then action starts to occur. 
but I don't know what you think, Jason. I've seen so many people make so many claims, and I think it's worthwhile to watch all the research and don't fight about it. Don't dismiss it. Look at it. Look for what's echoed across different people's research. This is an important, important topic, but it appears that there is an endless checkbook and half the time the planes that are doing this don't seem to have markings. Other times they do. Is there anything you want to add before I wrap up hour one of 508 and prep for hour two? Well, we're only into the 60s, and it's clear that they had plenty of information to work from already on weather modification. And once again, let's ask, what can they do today, and why aren't they doing anything about fixing issues in the modern day? Right. Wildfires, damaging hurricanes. But what's really, really scary about this is they probably have an open checkbook. I mean, Johnson almost said as much at the end of that little quote, right? He said, what science has learned makes the the budgeting department obsolete is basically what he was getting at. But if you're telling me you can modify weather with a couple canisters of silver iodide, then the cost isn't even an issue. But I don't think cost matters anymore. I think they print money as they wish. And I think the people with power, the last thing they care about is money. After all, We're watching Disney implode on purpose. We're watching beer companies implode on purpose. We're watching them gather together after they've imploded and lost billions in market share, making Bud Light the official Disneyland beer. They are doubling down. They are tripling down. And at no time do they seem to give a damn about the monetary aspects. And I think that's an important issue with what we're going to get into Anyhow, that's hour one that I'm wrapping up. Hour one is free to everybody at pro777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W 777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. They also get access to the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon, which has a hell of a lot of interesting telescope work and other things in it. It's won a number of awards. With that, we're going to prep up for hour two, and I'd like to wish each and every one of you a happy, healthy, and a higher-minded new era, hopefully someday in the future, an era free of weather manipulation. There it is, man. Hope you see us on the other side. Cheers.
Belief is the enemy of knowing.